Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Uh, please take your seats. And uh, as you do, feel free to turn up that passage in your Bibles if you have them, and let me pray uh, before we look at this uh, together. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the journey that we have been on over the past few weeks and months, looking at uh, the lordship and the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom that he offers and the way that he wants us to follow him. Father God, I pray that as we come to bring this section of Luke to a close over these last few weeks, that you would tell us things that we really need to hear, that our hearts would be charged and warmed and encouraged as we see that Jesus is everything, the best thing for us to follow, and the only way to salvation. Lord, we pray all these things in King Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, uh, uh, good morning again, and welcome to uh, so the last section of uh, Luke's Gospel. This is the last episode uh, this morning in this part of Luke's Gospel as we come to the end of this walkthrough uh, with Jesus through his school of discipleship on the way uh, to Jerusalem and the cross. And the question we come today and next week is, how does Jesus draw all of this teaching to a close? What is his f- finale, if you like? What's his leaving note? What is he wanting his disciples then and us now to be left with? Especially as, as we think about sort of heading away for the summer, this is a good thing for us to reappraise as to what we've looked at and what that means as we continue with him. Well, I think the answer to that is fairly simple. Jesus wants us to tell us what he's always been telling us, to remind us again of what he is on earth to do, what kind of kingdom he is to bring, and what that means for us as we come to decisions concerning him. Do we follow this Jesus and his kingdom, or do we walk away from him? Do we trust and rejoice in this king and become willing disciples of him, following him on the road to the cross? Or do we become disciples of the kingdom of the world instead? And this episode of the healing of this woman on the Sabbath shows very vividly, one last time, that very stark choice that that Jesus gives to us. And this is made all the more clear when we notice that the passage that we come to today at the end of this section of Luke is very similar to the episode that we started this section of Luke, isn't it? All those weeks ago, right at the very beginning of the series. And that's really important for us this morning, for that's very deliberate on the part of Jesus and of Luke, who, if you remember, is is forming an orderly, well-ordered account so that we may be certain of Jesus, and in today's passage and over the past few weeks, that we may be certain of, specifically, of of his life-giving, glorious kingdom. So to that end, let's jump right back to the start of our series, back in chapter 11, and and put what we saw there eight weeks ago alongside our passage this morning. For in chapter 11, verses 14 to 28, we see a miracle of Jesus. This is going to come up, so the the, the healing of the demon-possessed man. This is the order of that passage. We saw a miracle of Jesus. He casts out the demon from the possessed man, and that is followed by an accusation by the religious rulers, if you remember. They accuse Jesus of being Satan. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, And then Jesus gives them a lesson. How can that be, he argues? A house divided against itself, Satan divided against himself, that just makes no sense. He'd destroy himself for no gain. You're wrong, religious rulers. That's what Jesus is saying. I do this miracle not because I am Satan, but because I am God. Shame on you. You know nothing of God and his kingdom. Then he finishes off with his teaching point in verse 28 of chapter 11, doesn't he? Blessed then are those who who don't accuse me and reject me, but rather who hear the word of God and keep it. 
So that's where we started, with, with a miracle, an accusation from the religious leaders, a, a lesson from Jesus that shows them up, and a teaching point, which is a call to follow him. And that is exactly what we see this morning in the final part of the section of Luke that we'll look at over these last two weeks. Line for line, almost, we have a miracle of Jesus as he heals this woman on the Sabbath. Then we have an accusation, again, by the religious leaders. Why are you healing on the Sabbath, Jesus, you lawbreaker? That's the implication. Then Jesus gives this religious ruler a lesson, showing him up his hypocrisy, saying, well, you work on the Sabbath without thinking, therefore showing him up to be someone who does not know the law and does not know God himself. And finally, he finishes with a teaching point, which we'll look at today and head into deeply next week about what his kingdom is like with the, the reaction from the crowd. Can you see? Jesus is doing exactly the same thing again. Our passage today, in short, is a bookend to where we started. It is Jesus bringing everything full circle. And he does this very deliberately to bring us back to the start. It's as if Jesus is saying, now, now, now remember where we were a number of weeks ago when we started this discipleship journey, you guys with me. Well, let me give you another opportunity, another miracle, another teaching point, another identical teaching moment to see how far you've come and whether you've learned anything during these lessons. What do you make of me now? After everything you've heard from me, will you now choose to follow me along the way? What is your decision now? After everything that you've seen me do and preach, which kingdom will you now choose? And kingdom language is really important to Jesus. It's everywhere, isn't it, in this part of Luke? It's where we finish today and next week. And it's actually what introduces this whole middle passage in Luke. Cast your mind back further, more than eight weeks ago, to sometime last year when we looked at the Lord's Prayer together. That's the prayer that sort of feeds into this part of Luke's gospel. What did we read then? Chapter 11, verse 2, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that prayer is Jesus teaching and preparing his disciples as to what this school of discipleship is all about. It'll be all about my kingdom, says Jesus. Being kingdom disciples and me teaching you how to pray in this way is me teaching you to pray for what God wants. And what does God want? Well, he wants his name to be honored as holy in the earth and for his kingdom to be the, the, the dominating almighty force that covers the world with people coming to know and being re re rejoicing in and, and, and being saved powerfully in this Jesus, the King. That's Jesus' purpose. That's, that's the whole point of his ministry. Everything he is talking about, or, 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 all the miracles that he's doing, all the healings, it's all to point to this one end, to show what his kingdom is like, to establish it, and to get people to follow him into it. However, not a, a few months into Luke's gospel, we realize, don't we, that Jesus isn't the only kingdom in town. There are, in fact, two kingdoms, aren't there, we've seen. Jesus doesn't come to a, a blank slate world. He comes to people and calls them to enter his kingdom, but they sort of find that they're already in one. He wants people to come into his heavenly blessed kingdom, but we're stuck in this earthly unholy one. And so he's really calling people to leave one kingdom and transfer to his. That is a pretty good definition of repentance, in fact. The, the repentance that Jesus is calling people to turn from your earthly kingdom, leave that one behind and walk towards and become a part of this new heavenly kingdom. We find, don't we, that the reactions to Jesus that we've been following all the way through, the people fall into two camps. 
Not all will receive him. Not all will want to go. Not all will want to see Jesus as king. Some will, but others will reject him, including priests in the temple and rulers, and as we see today, those heads of the religious people of God in the synagogue. You see, there are two possible kingdoms. And over the past three chapters, as we sort of draw this series to a close, we've had explained to us how discipleship in this new kingdom works, a discipleship that brings growth in the kingdom, that brings heavenly treasure and real eternal blessing, but a discipleship that is also really hard. And it's hard because we've been encouraged to be disciples in a world with two kingdoms in it. And the two kingdoms are diametrically opposed to each other, and they're in conflict with each other. And so we've sort of always been walking through the anxieties and the pains and the losses and the difficulties that we have to live in this world of conflict. And now we're nearly at the end of Luke's section on distinctive kingdom discipleship. And this week and next week is, is if you like, a call to arms. You're called to give your life to the work of discipleship and this kind of kingdom and to make your decision concerning him. And what we have this morning is the contrast between these two kingdoms and illustrated by one woman in need. The questions that is asked of us is, is which kingdom do you want to win? Which kingdom is good and which is bad? Which kingdom do you think is better for you and better for the earth? So let's start with uh, Jesus and his kingdom, illustrated by this woman he meets in the synagogue. First point, the kingdom of freedom in Jesus. First point of only two, two points this morning. Let's get straight into it. Luke 10, 13, Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Nothing unusual there, but then he catches sight of a woman who has had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, the Bible commentaries uh, come up with a number of different maladies that this could be associated with what is going on here biologically or medically in terms of what's going on in this poor woman. But all of them agree that whatever it is, something that causes the body to be curved in on itself is really horrific. It's, it's debilitating, it's exhausting, it's life-limiting, it's degrading, it's socially stigmatizing, not being allowed to engage in the world in any way, really. There was a man who used to walk up and down the street that we used to live in who fits this description very well, bent double his head almost at his stomach, needing sticks to sort of help him move. The whole world shut off from him, only the pavement to look at. That was his entire world. No one knowing how to even talk to him, can't catch his eye. It was painful to see him cut off from friendliness and community. That is this woman's life. That's her experience, cut off from the world for 18 years. She is the woman in her community with her face to the ground, bent in half, imprisoned by her body. That's what she's known for. And I use the word imprisoned there very deliberately because the language that Jesus uses here is all about being in a prison. Go through the passage again with me. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed. That's a, a Greek word that covers a whole multitude of meanings, acquitted, released, pardoned, let go, or the, the, the root of the Greek word here is, is, is loosed, to be loosed from the chains of. That's what it means. You're loosed from the chains of your disability, says Jesus. And then you get to the synagogue ruler in verse 14. 
who tries to categorize, categorize this as a really bad thing that, that Jesus done, something that shouldn't have been done on the Sabbath. That's the accusation against Jesus here. And then Jesus says to him, verse 15, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Again, the word untie in Greek is loosed. Can you see? What, what, what Jesus has done here with this woman, in other words, is what the, 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 the ruler and the self-righteous would do for their own animals, but not for her. Loosing their own oxes and donkeys from the chains in order to give them life-giving water, but they won't deign to loose this woman from her bonds and give her what she needs, life-giving healing. Certainly not on the Sabbath, excuse me. Well, Jesus does do that for this woman. She is like an animal, chained and unable to have access to life. That's how they're treating her. And Jesus sets her loose. Jesus doesn't stop there. The very next verse, 16, Jesus continues, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond? Can you see that the repetition of the words... All the time, bound, bound, bond, loosed, loosed, loosed. This woman is imprisoned. And just like the demon-possessed man all those weeks ago, the start of our section in Luke, so she, like him, is loosed from her bondage, freed, given her life back again from behind her cage. You can't miss the, the language of the prison. As Jesus said all those weeks ago with that demon-possessed man, if you remember, chapter 11, verse 22, he says... Jesus says, I am the strong man who has come into the world to break into Satan's kingdom, into this other kingdom, into his citadel, and to overcome him and to divide his spoil. Do you remember that? To set free all of his hostages, in other words. All the people in the earth were held hostage by Satan. Well, Jesus does it again with this woman. He's come into the synagogue. He's spotted a prisoner chained by Satan for 18 years. And Jesus smashes open the door and lets her out into the sunlight. There are two kingdoms. In which of these two kingdoms would you rather be? The kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of this synagogue ruler? The, the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of Satan? Wouldn't you want to be in the one that sets the prisoner free? And isn't this link between Jesus' kingdom and freeing prisoners everything that Luke has been telling us from the very earliest chapters? Cast your mind back further to Luke 4, verse 21. The very first time Jesus told the people who he was. Remember, he, 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 this was years ago. This is the start of the church plant. But Jesus stands up in the local synagogue and reads the scroll from Isaiah, saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you remember that? And then by the end of the morning, all the people want to throw him over the cliff. Why? Because what Jesus has read and claimed for himself is astonishing. The words are up behind me. Let's just read that. Verse 18, Luke 4, reveals that Jesus preaching Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the year of liberty. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, the eyes of all were on him, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He is saying very plainly, he in his person, Jesus, in that morning in the synagogue, he is Isaiah 61 coming true in front of them. 
He is the spirit of the anointed one, the sent one from God, his king, a king who is to proclaim liberty to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the the year of jubilee, that means, the year when all debts were forgiven and all sinners were let free, God's king. And this king's kingdom is all about freedom. Isaiah wrote those words when the whole people of God were captive in exile in Babylon under Daniel. That's where we were last term. Forced to live away from their homeland. homeland, And and, and someone is coming to set you free, says, says Isaiah. And Jesus opens the scroll. He reads his verses and says, it's me. Here I am. And so Jesus taught his disciples how to pray saying, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, this kingdom come. This kingdom of astonishing freedom. What a prayer to be able to pray. But let's head back into Luke 13 and the synagogue ruler. He is not happy with this new kingdom, is he? And for one reason in particular, this is the end of verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. Why? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, we'll come back to this man and what he says in a minute. But before we do, let's remember what Jesus has already taught us about the Sabbath, because this is very important. Here, Jesus doesn't claim, when the ruler says this, he doesn't claim an exception for the Sabbath law, does he? Like I would try to do with a parking ticket. Sorry, governor, my child was sick, and it was only for a few minutes anyway, and there was nowhere else I could have possibly parked to get emergency cow pole at this hour, etc., etc., etc. I'm so sorry. Jesus does not do that. He doesn't claim an exception from the Sabbath law. Oh, look, it was only a little healing work. Let me off this once, please. I promise not to do it again. Not at all. Look at what Jesus actually says, verse 16. Jesus says, ought not this woman be freed on the Sabbath day? In other words, no, freeing this woman on the Sabbath day was the appropriate thing to do, not the illegal thing to do. He's speaking as if freedom was actually the top of the Sabbath agenda. In other words, the work of making people free isn't the type of work that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. Rather, says Jesus, the work of making people free is the type of work that must be done on the Sabbath if it's to be done on any day. It is definitively a Sabbath work. Jesus healing people is is Sabbathing people. That's what's going on here. And if you were to go right back to the institution of the Sabbath in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, that is actually exactly what we see. A celebration of freedom. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, it'll come up behind me. Observe the Sabbath day, this is what we read, to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Can you see? And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore... The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. You see? Who is the Sabbath for? Well, it is for your daughter. We read in Deuteronomy. That's exactly what Jesus says in in verse 16 of Luke 13. Daughter. 
The Sabbath is for your ox and your donkey, just like we read here in, in, in verse 13 of Luke 15. Your ox and your donkey. You, you, you see, Sabbath is meant to be a good day for children and servants and oxen and donkeys. It's so that the bosses and owners have to give them all a rest. And the reason for the rest is a freedom reason. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, why is this? Because you were slaves in bondage to Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you up out of there with a mighty hand. He loosed you from bondage of that earthly kingdom. Therefore, God commanded you to keep freedom day. Can you see? Of course I would be healing on the Sabbath, says Jesus. It is literally what it was instituted for. Ought not this woman be healed on the Sabbath day? Is that not the pinnacle of Sabbathing? It's Freedom Day, Liberty Day. Why would I not celebrate that, says Jesus, by bringing freedom to someone? There are two kingdoms. And can you see why Jesus' kingdom is so good and so much better, and, and therefore why we would want to give our life to the work of his kingdom after he's shown us what the school of discipleship is like? Why we wouldn't want to be disciples of this kingdom? This woman is a perfect visual example of what kind of king Jesus is. And, and she arrived at the synagogue every Saturday for 18 years. I, I don't know, could, could she work? Was she forced to beg? Did she have children that she could never carry full term? She's in pain, bent double, unable to help herself, bound into her physical prison, and suddenly Jesus happens to her. He sets his eyes on her, he calls her over, and seven powerful words later, she, she's free. And you can imagine the conversation between the disciples as this school of discipleship is drawing to a close, as, as they sort of walk away from the scene, as, as they head home from class. Should we keep following Jesus? That, that's the question that they're sort of left with. Shall we take the division and the loss and the difficulty and the poverty and the pain that Jesus has been talking about over the past few weeks on this really hard road of discipleship? Are we really up for that? Are we really going to throw ourselves into this life? Is it really worth the opposition, the loss of income, the family, the prestige, the status? And as they have this conversation, they sort of look back in the rearview mirror, if you will. And what do they see? This freed, loosed, unbound woman... She's standing in the middle of the road of discipleship. She's, she's waving at them with love and gratitude, standing tall and magnificent and beautiful and straight with her head held high, setting her face like flint towards the Jesus who has happened to her and saved her and Sabbathed her. Does that image clinch it for them? Yes, they might have said, oh, I'm all in. Temporary loss in this life is nothing compared to this kingdom and this king who gives life and life in all of its abundance to crippled, decaying nobodies. I think we undersell Jesus and his kingdom of freedom. We stress some aspects of work, of his wonderful work. We spend a lot of time rightly over the past few weeks and months looking at future glory, that astonishing gift of this kingdom. But we can miss stressing freedom in the here and now. We almost don't believe it. And that's partly because freedom has come to mean to do whatever we want to do in our culture. But in the Bible, to Jesus, freedom, true freedom, means total freedom to be able to live for God in the ways that he wants that are deeply affirming for you. 
It's the same freedom that the whale has when you place him back into the ocean. The, the freedom of true life for the whale is to be restricted to the sea, isn't it? And, and not the type of freedom that allows him to be released onto the, la to the land to sort of chance his luck with the humans. A freedom that he might have thought was best for him and actually was quite exciting, but, but found that in trying to live that kind of freedom, he became beached on the sand and he started to die. Freedom is, is a wonderful thing. It's powerful. It's everything that our culture wants and desires almost more than anything else. It's incredible what the fight for freedom does to a person. Humans will die for freedom more than almost any other cause. Look at Ukraine at the moment. It's a deeply powerful wonder. Uh, and it is central to Jesus' kingdom, to everything that he is offering to every man, woman, and child, and to anyone listening this morning who hasn't committed their lives to Jesus. It is this kingdom that he is wanting you to be a part of. Jesus talks about slavery to sin and death. His disciples, they talk about slavery to disobedience and impurity, the passions and desires that grip everyone on this planet. And in the light of that slavery to the kingdom of the world, can you see then why Jesus has transcribed in an orderly fashion by Luke close, uses this miracle to close this section with? Because consider what Jesus has been teaching over the last few months. Chapter 12 talks about our anxieties over our wealth. Four things, specifically. Anxieties over our wealth, our status, our clothes, and our height, which is a funny thing. That means our bodies, in other words. And we know that these four things, these four pressures, have become a prison for more and more people, haven't they? Especially in recent years, there's an epidemic in our younger people through how they are seen on social media. It's really debilitating. And that pressure to be some impossible standard of success and beauty is a prison. And people's bodies bear the cost of that in the end through all kinds of horror physical suffering, through incredible costs, through surgery, whatever it is, intense fitness regimes, through paralyzingly expensive lifestyle to keep up with the Joneses, sometimes bearing this kingdom even to the point of suicide. This other kingdom, so-called freedom, is unbearable, says Jesus. It is an unbearable kingdom. Humans cannot bear it. And yet we will insist on living it. But Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of freedom, real freedom, life-giving, life-affirming freedom. Not that becoming a Christian turns off the physical compulsion of an eating disorder or real medical mental health issues, anxiety disorders necessary. Those are all the things we work with each other in real community and seek help for. But Jesus invites people to transfer from a kingdom where you have everything to prove and nothing to gain where you have a status to protect and a treasure to accumulate, where you have to hoard as much as you physically can now, where you have to look your best today because you've only got this life to live, where you cannot afford to make a mistake because you'll be cancelled. Jesus invites everyone to be transferred from that anxiety-inducing kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus, to the kingdom where my Father in heaven cares for us. You're accepted by the king, whatever you look like, whoever you are. And where Luke 12, 32, from two weeks ago, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you this kingdom. Well, what a father to remember on Father's Day. So there are two kingdoms. 
Jesus is the king of freedom, but there's another kingdom here. Lastly, and very quickly, point one, the kingdom of freedom in Jesus versus second and last point, the kingdom of the burdensome hypocrisy of the fruitless tree. That's a bit of a mouthful. Last week, if you remember, we heard the parable of the fruitless tree. It represents the people who rejected Jesus in his own day. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13 says this. It'll be on the screen behind me. Jesus told his parable, a man had a fig tree, if you remember, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, found none, and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it waste up the ground? But in the parable, the owner of the tree is persuaded to give it one more chance, isn't he? Verse 8, and he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. Can you see that this is sort of last chance saloon, says Jesus, while you are living your life? You better show some fruit soon, you who are refusing to acknowledge me. In the very next episode, in our passage today, immediately after this warning is given, this last chance is given, what do we see? The personification of the fruitless tree. This man who represents this fruitless tree perfectly, this ruler of the synagogue who sees live with his own eyes the events that we have been reading and talking about, but who sees Jesus' kingdom of freedom as a terrible and egregious thing. He sees the woman in prison for 18 years. He sees the powerful words of Jesus. He sees the total freedom in her life. He sees the woman glorifying God, and he is furious. He's indignant because Jesus has the temerity to to heal on the Sabbath. He's a very vivid character, isn't he, this ruler? He's red in the face with anger, you can imagine, standing on the authority of his clipboard, and he launches into the most patronizing telling off in history. He said, there are six days on which you need to ought to work on the Sabbath, come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Can you see what he does? He, he, he accuses Jesus manipulatively by blaming her. It's the woman's fault. How dare you turn up to church on Sunday and, and demand to be made free, to, 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 to be freed? You, pick on someone your own size, mate. Do you see how his mind works? He says, no, 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 there's a form for this. There's a pink slip, a permit in my filing cabinet which you have to fill out for those who want to heal from Sunday to Friday. He acts as if there's a queue, doesn't he? A queue of hundreds of miraculous God-men and messiahs and Christs. And they're all in the queue, all the others messiahs and Christs. Well, they know what to do. They know the rules. They've been healing people quite happily within what I want to do. It's just you, Jesus. I'm not opposed to what you're doing, but I do know better than you when you should do your stupendous, impossible, life-giving, creator works of resurrecting bodies. Please, can you fill out this form and do what I say? I am in charge of this kingdom. (laughs) It's extraordinary, isn't it? And in this, Jesus sees three things wrong with this arrogant clipboard man. First is hypocrisy. This man doesn't even keep the Sabbath in the way that he's suggesting. When it comes to the ox or his donkey, which make him money, of course he's going to do a bit of farming on the Sabbath and let them drink water. They're not going to be able to work on on, on, on Sunday, the day afterwards. He breaks his own Sabbath rules. Secondly, Jesus calls him out in his dehumanizing of this woman. She is a daughter of Abraham, verse 16. If you notice that, that is what Jesus deliberately calls her. That's actually a theme that will run over the course of the next section. That it massively focuses on daughters, sons and daughters of Abraham. And Jesus deliberately calls her this because to people like this synagogue ruler, there are some Jews who Abraham would obviously love to hang out with. People like him, the important rule-keeping people. I'm an Abraham person. And there are other Jews who really don't count. Abraham would be a little bit embarrassed by. 
And Jesus, in calling this broken nobody of a woman a daughter of Abraham, very deliberately points out that she has exactly the same status as this ruler does. She is as valuable as he is. He is no greater than she is. Jesus is reminding this hypocrite that Abraham will see her as much as his daughter as he would this man, his son. And yet this ruler doesn't treat her as his sister as he should have. He doesn't treat her as one of Abraham's own, loved and longed for. He doesn't even treat her as human. This ruler doesn't even rate her on the same level as his cows. The implication is that he's done nothing for 18 years. Do you remember the woes given to the Pharisees by Jesus back in 11, a few weeks ago? Verse 46 brings to mind, Woe to you lawyers, this man is a lawyer, stickler for the rules. Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, yet you yourselves will not lift a finger to help. How dare you, says Jesus. It's really disgusting, it's dehumanizing, you hypocrite. But thirdly, Jesus reveals that this man doesn't understand the Sabbath or the Sabbath law because he doesn't understand the God behind it. Verse 17, as Jesus said all these things, his adversaries were put to shame. God shamed the man who presumed to know God. What Jesus says in these verses is a devastating takedown, isn't it? It's not that Jesus breaks the Sabbath rule because he's a bit of a rebel with a big teddy bear heart and he gets away with it. It's the synagogue ruler. He's a hypocrite. He cannot be trusted with God's people because he doesn't know or understand God. And this is the picture that Luke is building. This is the characteristic of those who oppose Jesus, the characteristic of this earthly kingdom. Jesus stands for freedom, and the people who opposed him, they stand for fruitless, dehumanizing, God-denying hypocrisy, kings of a kingdom that oppresses and dehumanizes and enslaves. Can you see then, as we draw to a close, how this comes full circle? We started the series all the way back in with the healing of the demon-possessed man. Back in chapter 11, Jesus breaks this man free. Jesus is accused of being Satan. Jesus judges these people, shows them up to be hypocrites. You don't know God, you're not a part of this kingdom. And here in chapter 13, after all his teaching and last chances, straight after the reminder that there's one more chance for this fruitless fruitless tree to repent and bear fruit, Jesus gives them one more chance by providing the identical setting. He breaks this woman free. Instead of recognition, the same thing happens. Jesus is accused of being a scripture lawbreaker by this ruler. And Jesus judges him as a hypocrite. You don't know God and you are not a part of my kingdom. You have not learned, says Jesus, and time is running out. This woman has learned, says Jesus. And to hers is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life, the promise of Abraham, given and gratefully received by a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham now not just in a bloodline sense, but in a sense of real healing and faith, brought into the line of Christ, a daughter of the king himself. There are two kingdoms. And there are two very vivid outcomes for these two kingdoms. For if this ruler is the kingdom that wins, then what is the outcome? Very simply, it is the disciples leaving this town. Instead of a rejoicing, alive and transformed woman in their rearview mirror, they see the same woman shuffling back home with her sticks, bent double for another 18 years in torture and imprisonment ahead of her. I don't think much of this Jesus if he has to bow down to clipboard man. That's the kingdom of imprisonment where the people who claim to be God's people tell you, don't talk about Jesus, don't call people to repentance and faith, that's not fair, keep people as they are. That's the context of 11.12. It's not just legalism of religion that does that, it's the world. 
the religion and the world join forces and says, you will keep our rules. We're the kings of the kingdom. You will follow and obey these sexual ideologies. You will say the things you want to say. You will conform to our standards of beauty and success and influence. And we're driven to despair. Or there is the kingdom of what actually happens here when Jesus, the king of this kingdom, is not intimidated by clipboard man, not intimidated by religion, not intimidated by the world, where he proclaims freedom and this woman stands tall and free. And what's her reaction? She is glorifying God and the people are rejoicing in all the glorious things done by Jesus. Which kingdom do you want to win? You see, that's a question to us as we draw this whole school of kingdom discipleship to a close. What are you going to do now concerning Jesus and his kingdom? With the time that we have left, as we are given that one chance in this life by the vine dresser to tend to our fruitless roots, what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to reject him and stand on our rules and laws that will eventually ruin us like this ruler? Are we going to reject him like the Pharisees? Are we going to stand on our own self-righteousness? assuming that we know what is best, or are you going to be like this woman and the crowd, the, the body of people who follow Jesus that represent the normal punter in the street? What is their reaction? They rejoice gladly, for they are witnessing the kingdom of freedom in Jesus, and that is a beautiful and powerful thing. What kingdom do we as a church, and those of you who don't know Jesus, want to win? Which kingdom do you want to be a part of this morning? For there is not much more time left to choose. And Jesus, the vine dresser, offers you today the chance to follow him to freedom. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you so much for everything that we have been looking at in Luke over the course of this past term. Thank you for the beautiful riches in glory that we have waiting for those who choose to follow you. But thank you so much as well for the freedom that we have in this Jesus and in his kingdom now, that we don't have to conform to the awful rules of the world, that we don't have to be what the world demands of us, but that we can be the way that Jesus wants us to be, free as sons and daughters of Abraham, as sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs with Christ, the promise of the inheritance that is given to us as saints of the Lord Jesus, a part of his glorious, wonderful family, free to be able to live for him and for him alone. Heavenly Father, I pray so very much that this would be a kingdom that we would want to join. For those here who don't know you, for those who are watching online who haven't made that decision yet, may this be the day where they seek the salvation of the Lord Jesus and become a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, those of us who know you, to be fully committed to this kingdom to be people who want to live for Jesus and want to go speaking about him and telling others about how wonderful Jesus is, the only person who saves. We pray all of these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.